Well, good morning. Very nice to see you all this morning on this Good Friday morning, ready for us to study God's Word together. Hope that you're uh, up for this and that you're enjoying uh, the morning. Are you doing that? Good, I'm pleased. I don't know whether you can see down here, but there's not just signers at work, but on this screen here, words that I say appear. You probably can't read them all um, very well. But this amazing lady down here is actually typing the kind of things I say on a very special typewriter that comes up here. And I think she's been doing an absolutely amazing job because... Because can you imagine not knowing that I'm going to say bara and ex nihilo? <laughs> you imagine that? And the signers don't know that, and she doesn't know that uh, either. <laughs> and you can imagine that she's going to put words there like, what's he talking about? <laughs> and I think that if she doesn't like the fact that I use phrases I haven't warned her about, like epistemologically naive. <laughs> that just proves that she's not epistemologically naive, which is fantastic. So, wow, what a system we've got here, high-tech uh, on every hand. And here we are, and it's all geared, all this lighting and sound, visual images and signing is all geared to help all of us engage with this word ever more powerfully and ever more clearly. And that's a really exciting thing. The first Bible reading. One... Creator God. Before him, nothing. After him, something. And from something, everything that we know about in our world. And that's why our God's interested in and wants to be involved in and not shut out of every single part of the created order. The second Bible reading. One universal God. Not simply a God for the Israelites, a Canaanite God, but a God greater than any Baal or Asherah, a God greater than any other God, a God before whom all other gods are pale imitations or fake. This God rules the ages, the epochs past, and any that may come before his return. Every language group, every nation, Every political system, none of them exclude his influence. He is the one God of the ages and the God of the entire planet. Today, Jesus, who is he? What representation of God does he give us? And how is he truly divine and truly human? So that's where we're sort of going today. Now, I started on day one by talking to you about the law of unintended consequences. 
I hope you're in your Bibles already at Mark chapter 2, because that's where we're going to be reading in a moment. But uh, the law of unintended consequences, I hope, sneaks up on you. And that during the course of today, tomorrow and Sunday, the Easter weekend, I found in my experience, is the classic weekend of the year when God surprises us, does things that we're not quite expecting. And I hope that he'll sneak up on you this Easter weekend. And just like on that very first Easter, when he did the shockingly unthinkable, the, the, the consequence of the Roman crucifixion and the Jewish betrayal was not the death of a rebel as they intended. The unintended consequence was a resurrection from the dead and the triumph over death and defeat of Satan and the glorious reign and rule of Christ forever. That's a pretty big unintended consequence. And it came because God's in control and he's sovereign. Some years ago, I came across this story about unintended uh, consequences and I, and I love it and I'm going to read it to you because you look like you need help. And I'm going to be, you know, pretty uh, dense this morning. That's a theological term, which means meaty. So hang in there in a few moments' time. I love this letter. A mother was passing her daughter's bedroom and was astonished to see that the bed was neatly made and everything picked up. This will be a staggering revelation to those of you with teenage children. Then she saw an envelope propped up prominently in the centre of the bed, addressed to her mother. With the worst premonition possible, she opened the envelope and, trembling, read the letter aloud. Dear Mum, it is with great regret that I am writing to you. I have had to elope with my new boyfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and Dad. I've been finding a real passion with John. He is so nice even with all his piercings, tattoos, beard, and motorcycle clothes. But it's not only passion, Mum. I know that I'm only 15, but I'm pregnant and expecting John's baby. And he says that we'll be very happy in his trailer in the woods. <laughs> he wants to have many more children with me, and that's now one of my dreams. John has taught me that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone and we're going to be growing it and trading it with our friends for all the cocaine and ecstasy which we want. In the meantime, please pray that science finds a cure for AIDS so that John can get better. He deserves it. Don't worry, Mum. Though I'm only a teenager, I know how to take care of myself and someday I'm sure we'll be back so you can get to know your grandchildren. Your loving daughter, Judith. And then she notices another page attached to this letter and she, she turns to it and it says this, P.S. Mum, none of the above is true. I'm over at the neighbour's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than my report card. <laughs> Isn't that great? Which is in my desk drawer. <laughs> I love you. Call when it's safe to come home. <laughs> That's great. Isn't that great? Isn't that great, eh? 
I don't know. Teenagers have so much to teach us about what really matters in life and stop us getting so uptight uh, about the things that don't. Well, unintended consequences. Well, here's a great story in Mark 2. Please turn then to Mark chapter 2. In a moment, I'm going to read it to you a little like yesterday. But not before I've introduced the great theme of Mark's gospel. Mark is the sort of also-ran of the Gospels in some ways. It's been mocked as a Gospel for many years, sadly, as if Mark is just an abbreviator of Matthew. Uh, And that sort of myth has has gathered credence and pace in the minds of some, and it's a tragedy, really, because in at least ten stories, Mark's version is longer than Matthew's, despite uh, what people seem to be saying. Mark is probably the earliest of the Gospels, and uh, despite its neglect, has made significant impact on the Christian church. Now, it has been neglected. In the Book of Common Prayer, which many people will be using this morning on this Good Friday in churches all over our country, Matthew is quoted over 30 times, Luke over 20 times, John over 20 times, and Mark only five times out of 89 references in the Book of Common Prayer to the Gospels. And so Mark seems to be the sort of poor relation, the short version. But remember, it is probably the earliest version. It probably is the recollection of Peter. All the evidence is that he's the apostle who dominates the writing of Mark. And so you're getting first-hand evidence from a major apostle when you look at Mark's gospel. And then remember, too, that the stylistic differences of the Gospels are important. Matthew is very Jewish in orientation, constant references to the Old Testament. Luke is very Gentile in orientation, that God-lover, Theophilus, is addressed at the beginning. It's part of the two-part sequence, Luke and the return of Luke, uh, Acts of the Apostles. Uh, John's Gospel is a selective tract written for conversion purposes. Matthew and Luke are packed full of miracle stories. John only has seven, and the seven I am sayings. John's clearly very selective about his material, written for a purpose. Mark's gospel is earthy, passionate, immediate, pacey. You can only really understand Mark's gospel if you read it while jogging. It contains a little Greek phrase that occurs... I've just realised I didn't tell you about the Greek phrase. Okay, just two words. Kai, K-A-I, euthus, which has absolutely no correlation in English. Uh, Okay, so you can just put useless if you want there, because I didn't actually tell you what it was. But it means, and immediately, throughout Mark's Gospel, this little phrase, Kai, euthus, keeps on occurring. And immediately Jesus was doing this, and immediately he did that, and then immediately he did something else. Straight away, it's sometimes translated. And then he did this. And then he did that. Now, that's why you have to read it while you're jogging, because it's this kind of pacey gospel in which Jesus seems to be sort of jogging around Palestine (laughs) instead of simply walking. It's an incredible pace in Mark's gospel. So with all that in mind, here we come to this riveting story that demonstrates both his humanity and his divinity. And the words will appear on the screen as yesterday uh, on this uh, sort of split screen so that you can follow me reading these words and I'll pause periodically to comment on background material so that you know it. Here is our annotated Bible reading today, which will help us 
focus on this. So you'll get both the words and me on the screen together. Okay, a few days later... Uh, Notice the start of this. He's been around the sort of synagogue tour in chapter 1. Jesus again entered Capernaum. Now, this is the base for all Jesus' ministry. It's a fishing port. It's far more significant than Nazareth as a town. Salted fish went from Capernaum all over the ancient world. It's a it's both a tourist place in the sense that it's by, in a beautiful destination by the Sea of Galilee, but it's also a working fishing port. With, it's got a business center, and it's a place where the Romans collected their tribute tax. So it's a center of politics, center of economics, a, a center of this whole region uh, of get the Galilee area. So Jesus chooses this place, and it's very significant. The people heard that he had come... And there's a very interesting word here. It's not the word house, it's the word home. They heard that he'd come home. It looks like Jesus either has his own house in Capernaum or, probably more likely, the fishermen, Simon Peter and Andrew, the brothers, are probably living in Capernaum. And Jesus uses it for lodging whenever he's in town. It'd be a modest fisherman's house, with a, with a door probably opening out onto the street, which explains why there's no sort of hallway and why the house is very quickly filled with people who really need to hear him. So the people came and they heard that he was at home in the place where he often was. And verse 2 says, So many gathered there, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, you've got to remember that in the first century, it was incredibly um, agricultural and and open as a society. Your door was always open unless you particularly wanted privacy and particularly at night. And so this is a fisherman's hut, maybe a more substantial house, with an open door, opening out onto the street with no hallway, constantly open. People hear that Jesus is his Capernaum home, perhaps staying with Andrew and Peter, and they come along because they've heard so many stories of him healing the leprosy patient in chapter 1 and other stories. They can't wait to find out what he's saying and what he's doing. He's the hottest story in town and gossip spreads like wildfire and they turn up at his door. Verse 3. Some Men came, bringing to him a paralytic. The Bible is very vague about what his condition is. It could be a a multiple sclerosis kind of condition, or it could simply be any condition that causes him to be unable to walk, probably without the use of anything from the waist down. His limbs are not operative, perhaps his arms are, but he can't walk. And so he's probably a beggar uh, of some kind and unable to earn a living. And he's carried by four friends. And since they could not get to Jesus because of this huge crowd that's gathered, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it... Now, this seems to be an act of unwanted vandalism. If someone came to my house and was able to get in, and sometimes is the case, there's a lot of people there, and they climbed on my roof and dug a hole in it, I would be less than impressed... 
Try and remember that Jewish homes, particularly fishermen's huts down by the Sea of Galilee, are flat-roofed affairs with a stairway outside. Because people went up on the roof in the, in the heat of the day to try and get a bit cooler. A- and the roof would be a sort of series of struts across with, with a very strong uh, reeds and so on between the main wooden struts. And often there'd be a kind of grass growing, a, a garden up there on the roof. And so what they were doing was digging dirt up from between the wooden rafters and digging up the, the sort of reeds. And it would be relatively easy to replace so that Simon, uh, Simon Peter, perhaps, and Andrew, if it was their home, would not be involved in massive cost. So it wasn't a difficult task to hack through the roof in this particularly Middle Eastern climate. So that's what they're doing. They're digging away the grass and the turf between the struts, uh, the wooden struts on the roof trying to desperately get to Jesus. And so after digging through it, they lowered the mat, the the word sometimes translated mattress, but you mustn't imagine a kind of, you know, eight-inch thick, sleep-easy mattress. This is a mat, probably more equivalent to a fairly thin blanket in which they could grab hold of each corner and lower him down in a kind of hammock-type arrangement. This is a very modest mat, Nothing substantial about this mattress. The paralyzed man was lying on it. And when Jesus saw their faith, interesting that phrase, when he saw the faith of the men who brought the paralytic, not the faith of the paralytic. Very interesting little insight this. Just let me pause long enough to say, sometimes God works miracle in response to faith, but not your faith. Somebody else's faith on your behalf. Quite interesting. When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the men who brought this man, he said to the paralytic, Son, well, literally speaking, use a gender-neutral phrase, child, uh, little one. It's a, it's a, it's a term of affection. We, we don't really quite have the same equivalent, really. It, it will be used to, to, to reassure, dear, sweetie, darling. Uh, none of those are quite right. Uh, my, my child, my, my son, my little one. Uh, it's got all these sort of resonances. It's a very difficult concept to translate. Uh, don't be afraid, is the implication. Your sins are forgiven. Staggering phrase. Now notice, you might think, well, he's just come for healing. Why are they saying his sins are forgiven? Because in the Jewish mind, there was a very strong connection between sinfulness and sickness. Do you remember the story in John 9? The, the tricksters of the religious leaders bring a blind man to Jesus and they ask him this stunningly Jewish question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus totally destroys their logic and says, neither. And now I'm going to heal him. And so Jesus uh, de-links the causal link between sin and sickness. Now, there is a link in some cases. There's un- it's unquestionably true in British culture. We have the largest uh, incidence of teenage pregnancy, for example, in Western Europe, and the largest incidence of uh, sexually transmitted diseases uh, in girls between the ages of 13 and 16 than anywhere in the civilized world. Now, it's clear that sexual promiscuity as a sin, in biblical terms, results in various sicknesses. And so there are clear links 
between behavior God disapproves of and a healthy body and an unhealthy body. And so there is still a link between sickness and sin in that sense. And we need to point it out. Strictly speaking, the transmission of AIDS, though it does uh, occasionally take place through shared needles uh, and, and so on, uh, it has been a significant effect in our world because of homosexual and heterosexual promiscuity. And, and so we would be an entirely healthier planet if we lived by God's laws and values and didn't break his standards. That's just a fact. And it's acknowledged, really, when you push almost all healthcare professionals, Christians or not. And so there is a link between sin and sickness. But it's not the link the Jews understood, which every time they saw a paralyzed man begging in the gutter, every time they saw a blind person, their instinctive response was to wonder what sin they'd committed. And that sometimes happens even today. I've visited more people in hospital and more people ill at home than you might uh, imagine who've said to me things like, what have I done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. It's not necessarily at all anything related to them. However, a good therapeutic model, a healing model, deals with a person's spirit and a person's emotions and a person's body. And that's what's going on here. Jesus the healer is adopting an excellent therapeutic model. He's dealing with a man's psychological, spiritual condition first, and then he deals with his physical condition. Any of you who are in the medical profession will know that psychosomatic illness, the effect of the mind on the body, is huge. And there are very significant numbers of people who are made quite a lot better by taking placebos. That is a drug which has no inherent capacity to solve a problem, but the person taking it believes it will help. So the place of the mind in healing is well understood and well recognized. And Jesus is miles ahead of his time in his therapeutic model here. He deals with the man's psychological condition. Don't be anxious, child, son. Hey, come on, it's all right. I know you're here surrounded by all these people and it's a bit undignified being let down through the roof and you probably feel a bit vulnerable laying here in your pyjamas in front of all these people let down through the roof. This is not a happy experience for you. I can tell. (laughs) So he deals with his psychological dysfunction, his spiritual need, and then he's going to heal his body. And so Jesus involves in the complete holistic therapeutic healing model here. Body, soul and spirit are all dealt with. Uh, and it's exciting uh, model for all the healing processes that go on in our church. Most churches only feel they've got a responsibility to anoint with oil, a la James 5, or to lay hands and pray for people. Actually, that's just the start of our healing ministry, not the end of it. We have a responsibility to take part in the holistic care of the people of God, every bit of them, body, mind, and spirit. So Jesus models something very helpful here. He de-links sin and sickness from the sort of crude generalizations of the Pharisees, and he adopts a holistic therapeutic model, which is stunningly effective. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law, literally scribes, it's, it's the word from which we get the word grammar in English, were sitting there thinking to themselves. How did Jesus know what they were thinking to themselves? He didn't say it out loud. Well, he either knew it supernaturally because he was God's son, or he knew it because he wasn't stupid. Because when your enemies are sitting around you trying to trip you up, you imagine they're trying to trip you up. So there is a supernatural dimension to this, but also just a simple wise dimension. Why does this fellow talk like that, verse 7? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
the Levitical law was quite clear on this. Anybody who blasphemes, who claims to be God, should be stoned. Now, there had to be tests about that, and people had to actually, you know, prove it. It wasn't carried out willy-nilly in some casual way, but boy, it was a serious charge. And in the end, of course, a couple of years later, when the Good Friday Passion Holy Week arrives for Jesus, they're remembering this and laying this charge at his door. It's part of their accusation. He claims to be equal with God. They don't forget. They're building a case against Jesus, which is going to take a few years to come to fruition. But when it does, it's going to be devastating in its consequences. Immediately, verse 8, there's the Caiaphas phrase, and immediately, no messing about here. Jesus knew in his spirit, this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Actually, he probably caught them off guard. Imagine me being able to know what you're thinking right now. Imagine me being able to walk here and going, you, in red down there. There's nobody wearing red over here. That's why I'm saying that, just in case you, you know, worry. You are thinking right now about how soon this is going to be over so you can go back for coffee. Stop thinking that. Pay attention. Imagine how great, wouldn't it be great as a preacher if you could do that? Wouldn't it be fantastic? And you, stop thinking bad things about your wife. Well, that'd be wonderful. Listen, I... I could give up the day job. It would be, oh my word, it'd be fantastic. Well, Jesus, insightful, incredible with his audience. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this. But I am saying this to you, verse 9. Now, this is a classic way of Jesus dealing with things. Which is easier, I say to you. He gives them a little riddle, a question in the form of a riddle. Which is easier? I'm asking, looking for an answer, says Jesus. To say to this crippled man, one, choice A, your sins are forgiven, or choice B, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, this is classic Jesus. He uses riddle-type questions to deconstruct people's prejudices. He's constantly challenging perceptions of reality and giving people answers they don't want in the forms of questions they don't understand. That's a classic Jesus model. So, for example, people come to him and they say, Now, Jesus, we have a question for you. Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? What does Jesus do? If he says yes, all the Jew Jewish leaders think, well, he's just a collaborator. His whole ministry is, is just to do with kowtowing to these Roman oppressors. And if he says no, they turn him into the Roman authorities for insurrection and rebellion. So what does Jesus deal with that? He deals with it the way Jesus always deals, with prejudice and closed minds. He says, show me a coin. Now I've got a question for you. Whose head's on this? Well, it's Caesar. Okay. Well, you should give to Caesar the things that are his. And to God, the things that are his. I mean, it's stunning. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, do you ever have those conversations with non-Christians or with Christians? You're having a kind of an argument. And you walk away. And half an hour later, you think, if only I'd have said that. Does that, does that, does that never happen to you? It happens to me all the time. And it's worse for me because people expect me to be brilliant and to know all the answers. And I don't. But it's even worse. I wish I'd said that. Jesus seems totally masterful in these situations. And here he is, surrounded by these scribes, 
desperate to have him killed. That's intimidating. Listen, it's hard to teach sometimes in this environment because you know that people are comparing you with other people. That's Steve Gorroger. He's all right. But I can think of, and then you think of your favorite preacher, he's not quite as good as them. And I'd listen a bit more carefully if he wasn't a Baptist. (laughs) And you make all sorts of judgments, and I have to preach Daniel in the lion's den. Imagine Jesus. He knows they're critics. He knows they don't want to know the truth. So what does he say? I have a conundrum for you, a riddle. Can you solve it? And clearly, they're going to be put in an impossible position. Which is easier, says Jesus. To say to this man, every wrong thing you've done has been forgiven. And the tense here is very interesting. I don't mean I am tense. I mean the tense of the form of speech. Jesus is saying, you are forgiven now. The forgiveness is happening as I speak. It's not you will be at some point mainly forgiven. The tense of the Greek is quite clear. You are forgiven, which is easier, he says, to say you're forgiven right now or roll that mat up and get out of here and go home. You're well, which is easier. Now, now what are they supposed to say to that? I mean, they're trapped either way, as Jesus knew that they would be. And that's why Jesus does not hang around for an answer, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he kind of tails away and smiles. I imagine him smiling. Now, I don't know this. Okay, I'm making this up. For the first time this morning, I'm telling you something that I, I don't know for sure. Okay. But I imagine this is what happened. Oh, I might be wrong. This might not be what happened. You are welcome to a different view. You can go on serving the Lord in your way. I'll serve him in his. Uh, It's no problem. Okay, it doesn't matter to me. So here's what I imagine happened. Jesus. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stands up, smiles walks over to this by now bewildered, pyjama-clad, very frightened man, surrounded by all his religious leaders and people he knows, no doubt, the centre of attention when he doesn't want to be. I imagine Jesus reaching down and saying to him, not in an angry voice, not even in a sort of shouting voice that we associate with military command, but the gentle encouragement of a loving father or grandfather to a slightly wayward child. My child, I tell you this, get up. Take up this mat which has been your home for years and go to your real home. Go home now. Just as... Verses 1 and 2 told us Jesus was at home. Jesus wants this man to be at home too. In a place of security, because that's what home speaks of, a place of safety, a place of acceptance, a place where he can be himself, not on show, not pretending, but now well and safely back home. It's It's a lovely, tender moment, I believe, though the Bible doesn't record those moments for 
Verse 12, he got up. <laughs> he got up. That's easy to skip over that, isn't it? He got up. Three words. He got up. He'd been on this mat for a while. He got up. You imagine, he, he gets up. He, he hasn't got up before. He's been down and down and down and down. And he went up on the roof by virtue of some friends. But he's never been down and got up on his own. And here he is. He got up. And <laughs> he took his mat and walked out. I love this phrase. I love Mark because he's, he's so direct. He got up in full view of them all. Everybody could see that he'd been healed, including who's included in this list. Who's included in all? The Greek word for all here means all. <laughs> okay, clear about that so far, you Greek scholars, okay? All means all. They all, the scribes, the cynics, his friends, everybody who loved him, those who hated him, you know, the whole crowd, all of them, doubters, cynics, and believers alike, all saw this. And they said, this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, and this is, boy, the law of unintended consequences writ large. I pray you'll be able to say this as you go home from spring harvest this year, as many thousands have before you. We have never seen anything like this. Whoa! God's at work here, transforming and changing lives. We have never seen anything like this. Okay, well, so that's the end of the annotated Bible reading, and now I'm going to start preaching. Uh, here we are. What's the point of all this? Well, it's about the human Jesus and the divine Jesus. Let me just take a few moments to, to paint in for you the splendor of what's being revealed about our one God in the person of Jesus this morning. Firstly, notice the divinity of Jesus as this passage unpacks it. In chapter 1 and verse 1 of Mark's Gospel, it says this, the Gospel is introduced in this way. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the Gospel, to show us God's Son in action and operation. So, here we are. And chapter 2 sees this developing. His divinity is clear. And it's clear in his capacity and ability to forgive sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. And listen, the scribes are dead right. They're absolutely right. Don't think for a minute the scribes are a bunch of no-hopers, that they're somehow wrong about everything. Folks, that's the thing about the scribes and Pharisees. They're right about almost everything. They're just not right about the thing that really matters. They are almost right about everything. They said only God can forgive sins, and they're totally right. Jesus almost applauds them for that insight. You, you say that, he says, and, and the implication is, and of course, I agree with you, I'm a good Jew. You see, I can forgive you if you sin against me. If you are rude to me, you are unkind about me, you gossip about me, you do something which disadvantages me, you're malicious in some way, I can forgive you. You can come to me and say, Stephen, I'm really sorry I said that, blah, blah, blah. And I can say, okay, fine, well, you know, I forgive you. That's reasonable. But if, you know, you just turn to the person next to you and just thump them on the arm gently. Just ever so gently, 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 gently. That's it. Now, imagine, okay... You've just been thumped on the arm gently. Now, that's okay. But I'm going with my family 
in uh, a few months' time, God willing, uh, to Uganda. And um, they're particularly, Cara, uh, um, uh, who's here this morning, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much up to date with my immunization, uh, but they're very not up to date. And I think, I've estimated, they're going to have something like nine separate injections for this uh, whole process, and I'm, it'll bless them, I'm sure, uh, as they do that. Now, imagine that Cara over here has had her nine separate injections in that little place in her arm right here, which you have just thumped however gently. That would not bless her. Now, she could forgive you. She said, oh, you didn't know. You didn't know I'd just been and had these injections. Don't worry. It's all right. I forgive you. It's fine. And she could be sitting next to you saying, that's okay. But what I couldn't do is, I couldn't watch you thump her and say, oh, that's all right. I forgive you. You haven't done anything against me. How can I forgive you? I've got nothing to forgive. And you see, All of us have got things to say sorry to other human beings about from time to time. But every single one of us has lived a life which undergirding it all is rebellion against God. And only he can forgive us of those sins. We can't be forgiven by another human being. No third party, only God can forgive us of our sins. And you may have come to the tent this morning and you may feel deeply guilty about something, some mistake you made in the past, some sin, some awful error, and it dogs your steps and you hate yourself for it and you feel dirty and unclean if you're honest. Now, most of us cover dirtiness and uncleanness and sinfulness with bravado. And so when you meet people who are arrogant and strident and aggressive, it sometimes means that they're deeply and acutely aware of their sin, but they're covering it up. But we know, if we're honest, that sometimes we carry guilt with us. And God comes to this tent this morning in the person of Jesus, just as surely as he met a paralytic 2,000 years ago, and he comes to us with the gentlest of compassion, not an angry sergeant major but a caring loving God and says to his child your sins are forgiven I would be amazed if there aren't people in this tent this morning who need to know for sure that their sins are forgiven it's an old-fashioned word isn't it sin I remember my Sunday school teacher saying to me years ago sin is a word with I in the center it's not very profound my theology's moved on a bit since then But frankly, I keep coming back to it. I am the problem and I need to be forgiven. Years ago, the Times newspaper ran a competition. What's wrong with the world? People had to submit essay answers. In the end, the winning essay or letter was from G.K. Chesterton who wrote this. Dear sir, I am yours sincerely. G.K. Chesterton. Folks, that's the problem with our lives, that we get in the way and we're sinful human beings. And on this Good Friday, we remember that Christ died for our sin and that not only the human pre-crucified Jesus was able to forgive sins as the Son of God, but the post-crucified Jesus is even more eloquently equipped to wash away the stain which affects every human soul and grants forgiveness from guilt and dirt 
and gives us glorious possibility of eternal life. I long for every woman and man in this tent that you will not leave Spring Harvest without knowing you are forgiven. Every dirty thing gone. It's an amazing miracle. It's an amazing miracle. But you can know that as Jesus Christ washes you clean on this Good Friday. What a day to find him. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, says Jesus. I'm going to heal this man. I'm going to heal him. And I'm glad he's healed. But folks, the greatest miracle actually is the forgiveness of sins. It's great that he's healed and that's a wonderful miracle. And praise God, he goes on healing people today in body and in mind. But praise God also, human souls know the washing from sin they could always know in Christ. They can still know it today. Despite the sophisticated, sophistication of contemporary culture, our sin still needs to be forgiven and washed away. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus uses the phrase, the son of man at the end here. Did you notice that? It's a rather odd phrase in some ways. It, it comes towards the end um, of this passage, verse 10. But that you may know the son of man. Now, what does that phrase mean? It's an Old Testament phrase that normally it just means human being. So, for example, in Psalm 8, which I quoted on the first day, the psalmist says, what is man, mankind, that you are mindful of him, the son of man, and so on, so the psalm goes on. And so it literally means human being. But in one very significant passage in Daniel, it talks about the son of man coming on the clouds to reign. And it summarizes the whole Old Testament... um, messianic expectation that a deliverer will come to rescue them. And Jesus, in a startling, what would be hugely arrogant moment, except that it happens to be true, claims to be the Son of Man whom Daniel prophesied. And so no hearer, no Jewish hearer, could fail to make the connection, because of course they were soaked in their scriptures. Lesson for us, by the way, to our a horrible paucity of understanding of the, the scripture is a condemnation on much of our mediocre spirituality. That Jewish audience would have been richly soaked in Old Testament scripture. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man who declares authority, they instantly are aware of this great whoosh of Old Testament prophecy descending on him and him saying, I'm claiming to be someone more than human that you can see. So he's claiming to be the living God. We've never seen anything like this. But not only, of course, is Jesus divine, uh, the culmination of our talk this morning needs to recognize his humanity. You you see uh, in the jigsaw pieces, if you were here at nine o'clock this morning, uh, uh, that Jesus is both universal and creator, and he's also human. That within the Godhead, there is now a human for us. Good Friday, by the way, has almost no significance unless Jesus is human and divine. Lots of people were crucified in the first century. I mean, thousands of people were crucified. What makes Jesus special? And lots of people down the age have suffered for various things, Christians and non-Christians, brutally butchered, tortured, and so on. The point of the cross is not the agony of the crucifixion. It seems odd to us because we're not familiar with it as an instrument of execution. But it was perfectly common in the first century. Runaway slaves were routinely crucified and hung up on the side of the road as a deterrent to other slaves from running away. This was nothing unusual. 
What makes Good Friday significant is who it is who's hanging on the cross. It's the fact that he is fully divine in some incredible way. And um, we'll look at this tonight in Psalm 22. Uh, when we study this material here in the Big Top tonight. Uh, in some incredible way, God is being torn apart on the cross. Don't ask me to explain that. But he's also fully human as well as fully divine. He is Jesus. Notice his name crops up again and again in this passage. And Jesus came home. And Jesus, verse 5, is seeing their faith. And, and, and so Jesus is a very common name. Lots of people call Jesus in Spanish-speaking countries, the name Jesus, Jesus, is commonplace. Jesus is just his name. That's probably what his mother called him. I mean, it, it seems odd to us, again, because most of, we don't call our children Jesus, really. We, we call, in the main, we shy away from that because of the divinity of Jesus, and we call our children by the names of the apostles. Don't we? John. Peter. Stephen. I wasn't an apostle, but I sneaked in later. And have you noticed, even though the Romans thought they were very important, that we name our dogs after them? Caesar, Brutus. We name our children after the apostles, but our dogs after the Caesars. I find that quite amusing, actually, myself. Just thought I'd mention that this morning. It's got nothing to do with this, but i throw it in there. So Jesus is just his ordinary name. And so he's fully human. And there are such lovely moments of tenderness in this. Jesus is at home. Human beings have homes. He's got to find a place to lodge in Capernaum. He's fully human. He's sharing with his friends in the fishing business. He's got old, good old Jesus. Come back home to Capernaum to see us. He's tender way with the man. His lack of condemnation of the people tearing up his friend's house incredibly, the full humanity of Jesus comes to bear here. And so we find ourselves, fully God and fully man, this Jesus, loving us, changing us, engaging us, filling us with his amazing presence. So the Jesus who heals the, heals the paralytic, of course, is God walking on earth, but he is fully us, a real human being on a real planet, earth, in a real country, Israel, in a real town, Capernaum, with real people in a real house with a real flat roof, with a real mangy mat, and a real bunch of critics. He, the human Jesus, lives out his life on our behalf. And I think that's absolutely marvelous because we are so human. We bring our humanity to this process, don't we? We'd like to be more like Jesus in his divinity, but we're very, very human. Look, at, look around and you see the great humanity. And, and people disguise it well at Spring Harvest. We do our best to maintain an air of unrealistic spirituality while around others. But look at us, the tall, the short, sorry, sorry the vertically challenged. <laughs> the fat, the thin, the old, the young. The not-so-spiritual, the struggling with bad temper. See, where does the humanity of Jesus play itself out in our meetings at Spring Harvest? Does it play itself out here in this tent? <laughs> no. Because this is where you're on your best behavior. This is where we're talking about God. But in a few minutes' time, back in your chalet, burn your hand on the kettle. 
and remind yourself how human you are. Be irritated because by the time you get back to the chalet, somebody else has eaten all the best biscuits. Aren't we incredibly vulnerable and human? And yet we pretend so often, and that's a great thing. And again, we'll look at this tonight, the sheer honesty of the humanity of Jesus. It's so real. And the danger, of course, we go back from spring harvest, don't we? I often say this at, at events like this. We go back, don't we, on Easter Sunday night or uh, and, and then the following Sunday. And people look at us because some of them haven't been to spring harvest. They don't really know what it is. And they expect a kind of holy glow to descend upon us. And we go back with this kind of spiritual aura. And we, we kind of look holy, but hope we won't have to say that we're holy so that people can look at us and say, wow, how are you managing to walk six inches off the floor without touching it? <laughs> and you're trying to look as if you've just been Moses up the mountain, aren't you? Trying to, you're trying to look like that. You haven't been to the mount, you've been to Butlins, for goodness sake, okay. <laughs> so it, it's very human. Of course there are divine elements and God will surprise you. Of course he longs to surprise you. He longs to forgive our sins and set us free. Brothers and sisters, there's no question that the divine Jesus and the human Jesus combine on that first Good Friday. His death on our behalf is a wonderful, amazing blessing. May God help us today realize our sins are forgiven and that we've been set free by the only fully divine and fully human being, human being who ever lived. And somehow in that remarkable coalescence of divinity and humanity, Jesus strides the earth, healing the sick, setting free the paralyzed, forgiving sins, raising the dead, teaching his amazing moral teaching. Much of this encapsulated in the words of uh, Graham Kendrick's very famous Easter hymn, Meekness and Majesty. Manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty, bow down and worship. For this is your God. One God, go and serve him. One God, receive his forgiveness. One God, Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine, takes us into our lives, empowered, forgiven, restored and renewed. I can't think of a more exciting Good Friday message. God bless you.